So man is connected to God and has his telos, his goal and fulfillment when he comes back to God. He does not have his fulfillment in biological determinism or any other worldly ideology. Everything that the world can present will lead man astray. So man has his telos, his goal in God. Welcome, Father Mikhail Feldhammer. Good to have you on for a conversation. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah. So I had the privilege of being interviewed by you on your podcast. Uh, just, I think it's got, what, six weeks ago, something like that. Yes. Um, and then I just found it so productive and interesting that we wanted to follow up now with a conversation talking about uh, your position, which is quite unique in some ways as being, or I don't know if it's unique, but at least very, very interesting in that you're an orthodox priest in probably, at least by some measures, the world's most secular country, Sweden. And Indeed. also very interested in masculinity and maybe I think it's the only country in the world that also has an actual feminist political party that's uh, represented in the parliaments and quite dominant uh, in, in many of the things. And definitely Sweden's very well known for this whole feminist agenda. Um, so I was thinking that if we could start off by at like a very high level for people who maybe don't know so much about it, um, and, you know, I think in a lot of time in, you know, I live in Scandinavia as well, then Christianity gets associated with just the state church. We have a, we have a state church in Denmark, in, in Sweden, you have what used to be the state church has now been kind of separated, but still very, very dominant in people's minds. Uh, the, the, um, the Lutheran church, of course. Um, so what is Orthodox Christianity uh, for people who don't know what that is and what it's about. Oh, wow. That's a big question. <laughs> well, the Orthodox uh, Orthodox Christianity is, is not just Christianity among other Christianities, one option among others. Orthodox Christianity is really uh, the Orthodox Church, the Church of Jesus Christ, which he uh, founded through his apostles and uh, in which uh, his Holy Spirit is active the holy spirit of god is active uh, vivifying the believers uh, from the beginning up until today so this um, you can you can speak of the orthodox church as a hospital that is uh, administering uh, medicine to human souls or human persons rather uh, the orthodox church has preserved the the recipe, so to speak, of uh, how to address human spiritual illness and sickness, and uh, still continues to give out that medicine to anyone who is willing to uh, turn around to Christ and uh, uh, become a member of his salvific body, the Orthodox Church. Uh, that is one way to answer that question, but it, I think it goes straight to the point of what it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was just speaking to a guy yesterday who was talking about how he had grown up in the Anglican church and felt quite traumatized by his experiences uh, there. And so anytime he met some other person saying, this is the true church of Christ, then he automatically felt a certain skepticism. Um, and actually, that's it's my shared experience as well, is that I grew up in a, in a Protestant church where I, I felt uh, that there were some things that just didn't resonate with my understanding and my experience of the world. And, and so what is it, do you think that the Orthodox church has, what are the most convincing claims that it can put down or points that say like, this is 
the the church of Christ. This is the hospital that is serving that real food inspired by the Holy Spirit. Mm. Yes, that's good. A good uh, point to make. And I must confess that in my earliest, earliest search for uh, genuine Christianity, I stumbled upon a page on the internet which claimed exactly that we are uh, an Orthodox page uh, that claimed that we are the true church of Christ and we're not interested in ecumenical uh, conversations and things like that. It was, I think it was really the old calendar uh, church that I stumbled upon and they are even more, you know, rigid in these matters. <laughs> so I was quite uh, uh, scandalized, one could say. Um, now we are engaged in ecumenical conversations. Um, so this is something that we do, um, but on a whole different uh, level or premise, you can say, uh, compared to Protestant Christianity. And that's because our differences in ecclesiolo uh, ecclesiology. Now, um, the claims. I would say that there are two main claims. The first one is the most important, and it is that uh, the Orthodox Church produces saints en masse. Uh, as I said, we have preserved this medicine and we can see in person's lives coming to the church that they are changed, uh, they receive the spiritual medicine and they are in cooperation, synergy with God, uh, turning their lives around and becoming more and more the persons they were created to be in, in the process of theosis. Uh, the second argument is uh, more of a historical argument, I would say. If you're a Protestant and you would claim that you are the only true church, which some Protestants still do, you would have quite uh, the difficulty to claim that if you study church history. <laughs> yeah, you would have to come up with some sort of explanation of why the true church didn't appear up until the 16th century or even later in some cases. And you have theories about that. Um, there's one uh, Anabaptist theologian, if you could call it that, who said that uh, after the apostles died, the true church went up to heaven. And, you know, it waited there for <laughs> 1,400 years. And then <laughs> at the time of the Reformation, it, you know, dropped down again from heaven. Uh -huh. uh, so that's one way of solving it. <laughs> yeah, not, not a very good one, though. But uh, yeah, so the Orthodox Church, we have actual continuation in uh, not only in apostolicity, which is important, mm -hmm. you know, uh, bishops laying hands on each other in several different uh, holy sees, mm -hmm. archdiocese. Uh, you also have continuation in teaching. Uh, we don't have a break in the teaching. We don't have... Uh, how do you call it, you know, dogmatic uh, development mm -hmm. uh, as the Roman Catholics do. Uh, we have had the the full deposit of the faith from uh, as a gift from the Holy Spirit, not because we're great, but because the Holy Spirit is, um, is great and giving such gifts. And this has been preserved in the Orthodox Church up until today. Mm -hmm. and, and those two uh, arguments, they go together because... Uh, we have the full deposit of the faith. Doesn't mean that we have, you know, uh, the perfect catechesis or, you know, one, two, three, A, B, C, everything is uh, 
structured and nice. You can see this if you come to the Orthodox Church. <laughs> no. No, actually, uh, actually, the, to the opposite, it's actually there's a mystery to it, yeah. which maybe yeah. isn't in, in, in you don't find in all other churches that we we preserved the sense of mystery. I would say in, yeah. indeed, some things you cannot explain. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, but this uh, dogmatic fullness or fullness of the faith you can see in the fact that people are saved uh, people are divinized uh, so those two go together that's the main claim yeah yeah and just to underline the first point that you made i think which fits well with the second claim you know it's like that that's where you look in the in the orthodox faith in the church you that you're gonna find priests who make mistakes who you know leaders who there's where there's power there's always going to be corruption of course yeah, of course but when you look at the saints that are just regularly produced up to the present day in the orthodox faith i happen to know a man who and i've met him several times who's coming to denmark just in one month from now father zacharias from essex who's considered to be a living saint and this man he knows things about me that it's impossible for him to know and yet he knows it and he just refers to it offhandedly in our mm. conversations um and 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 so when you read these the lives we've just last time we spoke about the man of god film by by saint nectarius and and the life of saint paisios they're shockingly turning around your understanding of what it means to be a man and how it means to be a, a man of God, especially uh, in these life stories that are just so remarkable and so mm. strange and so powerful, right? And, and you really just see these examples of incredible humility uh, and perseverance and robustness in the face of adversity. Mm. That it's like, you, you, you can just know like, it's not like, you know, some big celebrity superstars that are <laughs> going out and doing something. It's the exact opposite of that, right? Mm. It's, it's yeah. people who are really living lives mm. of assuming themselves to be nothing and God lifting them up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Humility is the foundation. Humility is the foundation. I, uh, I I just recently went to Mount Athos in Greece and uh, speaking about saints and the pleroma of saints, uh, we had the opportunity to venerate saints and relics um, after the services there. And, you know, you, you, you have uh, relics from uh, St. Mary Magdalene, one of the mirror-bearing women, uh, so that's quite early. Uh, and then you have saints, uh, you know, 20 saints, uh, relics from the centuries up until recent uh, times. Saints from Simonopetra from the uh, early 1900s, for example. So it's just people, uh, the church keeps on producing saints. And, and we know perhaps maybe 5% of those saints. Mm -hmm. But we have also during the church year, All Saints Day in which uh, the church commemorates all the saints known and unknown. And I think unknown saints, you will be surprised when we uh, reach paradise and see the huge um, gathering of saints, you know, humble people that have served our Lord throughout the ages. Okay, good. So that's the, that's the Orthodox faith. So Father Mikhail, how did you find this... Uh, uh this faith how did you find the system can you tell us a little bit about your story growing up in secular sweden mm -hmm. um and and what is it that attracted you to to that and how, how did you get into us and where you are today as a ordinated priest yes uh, as you said sweden is one of the most secular countries in the world uh but i had the advantage of uh being raised in a christian family my father is a lutheran priest and my mother is very active in a, in a movement in not the official 
Swedish church, but associated with the Swedish church with a broad ecumenical mindset. You know, um, it's a charismatic movement, uh, but with a liturgical basis, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So uh, I grew up with the familiarity with a lot of different church traditions and a respect for the older churches. Mm -hmm. So uh, <clears throat> in my youth, I was going to go in my father's footsteps and become a priest in the Lutheran church myself. And um, uh, I uh, even started to uh, do the, the necessary uh, education at the University of Gothenburg for, for this. But, um, and so there's two lines in Sweden. You, you go the, at the university and at the same time you apply to the church it the official organ of the church and they decide if you are um called outwardly so to speak you have your inner calling and they decide if you also have the outer calling mm -hmm. uh, to the priesthood so uh, i began studying and in my studies i eventually came upon the the orthodox church and the church fathers and to keep it a bit short i i uh, started to read as much as i could about the church fathers uh, at the same time, a friend of mine uh, decided that he was going to become Orthodox due to some reasons. And uh, I asked him if I could uh, join him in the in the services that he were going to attend, uh, which I, of course, could. So what I've read got uh, flesh and blood, so to speak, in the, the, the experience of this those services. And this was very simple services. They, you know, the, the choir was uh, a humble choir, shall we say. And uh, <laughs> and they didn't have an Orthodox church or iconostasis or anything. They were putting, you know, icons on uh, chairs, mm -hmm. making their own iconostasis. And uh, so it was a very humble, small parish. But still, I could sense um, the, 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 the divine liturgy, really, the heavenly liturgy uh, when I came there. Was it in Swedish? It was. It was in Swedish. Yeah. There was a, an old priest monk that came from a monastery outside of Gothenburg mm -hmm. once a month or so and uh, uh, had the services in Swedish. Mm -hmm. So this was one line. And then uh, in my conversations with this, uh, the official uh, church, they could not give me, a, you know, green light. Yes, you can become a priest in, a, in the Swedish Lutheran church. The reasons for this was that I had two conservative views concerning women's ordination mm -hmm. and uh, this is something that has been accepted in the, in the Lutheran Church of Sweden since many years I mean uh, female priests so I can give them that that uh, it would be a problem if I would become a priest and not be able to serve with uh, my female colleagues shall we say but uh, we had very respectful conversation with that. I had the opportunity to meet the, the Lutheran Bishop of Gothenburg on many occasions and speak with him. He wanted me to change my views and how I, the consequences of my views. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to change their views, <laughs> uh, which they didn't. So anyway, we didn't get anywhere there. And my love for orthodoxy grew and grew as we were having these conversations. I remember especially one time when I had... Um, I partook of a conference uh, arranged by some of the Orthodox churches, and they had invited an Orthodox bishop there. 
And this was the first time for me meeting an Orthodox bishop. And when I met him, I immediately saw in him personified all that I have read about, um, you know, in St. Ignatius or, or the early church fathers, um, what they say about the bishop and how the bishop should be and how the bishop should be treated. This I could see in him uh, as a person. Mm -hmm. um, and I later that same afternoon, I had a meeting with the Lutheran bishop, who is uh, a very nice man, but he did not embody those, you know, it was not an icon of of that. So, can you say shortly what what are the what are the uh, characteristics of a bishop that you that you expect a bishop to embody? Well, the Lutheran bishop was a, a very nice man, a democratic person, a, um, a scholarly person. Um, but this other uh, the, the Orthodox bishop came with. It's difficult to put words to it because it's uh, sort of. Um, and an air of authority naturally in his um in his um uh, i'm losing the word here uh, his uh, role as a bishop uh, forgive me but yeah. um uh, an air of authority combined with a deep uh humility mm -hmm. uh, so those two in combination i i think would be the main uh, characteristics mm -hmm. and then when he served this was also my first hierarchical liturgy that i experienced mm -hmm. and that was also something that uh, enhanced this experience for me mm -hmm. an uh, air of authority with a deep humility it sounds like a good definition of uh, a godlike man <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. what we've been talking about a bit yeah <laughs> indeed. so um so from that moment from that afternoon i i knew for myself that i could not you know, become a minister in the Lutheran Church and be inspired by the Orthodox Church, you know, bring in icons and uh, incense and, you know, things like that. I had to uh, go all in. I had to become Orthodox. Mm -hmm. So uh, I uh, withdrew my application from the Lutheran Church. My wife was not ready to convert at that moment, so we had to wait. I, we had many very good and deep conversations together. My wife is a very very wise and good loving humble woman mm -hmm. uh she is uh, she's my apart from christ she is my salvation that's what i used to say um but uh, eventually god called her as well and uh, a couple of years later we were able to become orthodox in the antiochian church in great britain and mm -hmm. we came back to sweden and began with our small mission in gothenburg um so that's the sh that's the story, right? In yeah. quite short terms. And I think we'll get back to hearing about your mission in Gothenburg and and what's happening there. Yeah. Um, but let's just take up that point actually that you said was a a core sticking point. It sounds like the Swedish Church has some criteria for who they allow in, and mm -hmm. certain uh, opinions are not allowed, even biblical opinions, such as the idea of female priests. So maybe mm -hmm. you can tell us why the Orthodox Church only has male priests. Why is that the case? What, why is it that there's no female priests? Well, uh, where should one begin? Well, first of all, uh, it's the apostolic teaching. It's quite clear in the letters of St. Paul. Um, that uh, So if you read the Bible, you have it in St. Paul. You have it in Christ choosing 12 male apostles. 
you have it in him not choosing one of the mirror-bearing women, or for that matter, the Theotokos, the Panagia herself, the most holy and capable person uh, in the church. She is not a priest. And you have it also in continuity with the the liturgies, uh, liturgy of the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which if you read uh, second and third, um, oh, how you say it, Exodus, Leviticus in English, mm-hmm. um, you see that uh, when Moses uh, receives the how he should conduct the services, God tells him that you should conduct them according to what you've seen on the mountain, the the heavenly archetype. And you have uh, uh, you have many things that you can focus on there, but uh, you don't have female priests serving in the uh, old uh, in the in the old covenant services. And the church is a continuation and a fulfillment of the old covenant as well. So that matters as well. Uh, being a priest is part of uh, being a man. We can return to that later as well. All men are called to be priests in a certain way, uh, in putting your wife and your family uh, at the judgment day in front of Christ, presenting them, you know, uh, pure and perfect as far as possible for you as a man, a married man. Uh, so this is a. Um, you know, a priesthood of sorts. Um, Maybe what what is a priest? What what does that word mean? What where the the word the Greek is uh, hieros, right? Uh, yeah. What what is what does it mean to be a priest? Uh, what is the role? If you had to cut it down to the bare basics, what does it mean to be a priest? Would you say? Yeah, it means offering uh, offerings to God uh, and representing people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, bringing offerings to God. Mm-hmm. So uh, every time in Israel, when uh, people were bringing offerings, mm-hmm. they would put it in the hands of the priest. And the priest were would be the one mm-hmm. uh, offering to God. Now, a priest doesn't mean that you get to decide over people and tell them what to do and be the guy <laughs> in the fancy clothes who who uh, everybody looks up to and has a lot of respect and authority. <laughs> well, uh, really, it doesn't. But uh, it does in a way, you know, uh, and there's a danger in that. You can speak about clericalism uh, when you have this guy in his fancy clothes, which he only is supposed to use, of course, in the liturgical setting. Otherwise, he goes around in his black robe, uh, which is a sign of uh, humility. And him being, you know, it's a monastic garb in the beginning. It's uh, uh, him being de- dead to the world. So you don't have uh, any worldly authority if you are dead to the world. So the priest, uh, if he has any authority at all, it must be grounded in his uh, uh, relationship with God, his humility and his uh, ability to to sacrifice himself uh, to God for his flock. Christ is the main, the arch shepherd, the arch priest, and he gave his life for his flock. So this is the archetype for every priest ever since. Mm-hmm. Now, we live in a fallen world, as you alluded to earlier, and there are many priests in the history of the church and many bishops as well that uh, have misused their authority. Um, but, uh, for example, when people come to me in confession, 
uh, I can speak to them and give them advice from the holy tradition of the church, the medicine that we spoke about earlier. But I try to say that this is my advice to you. Uh, I cannot make the decision for you. You must make, uh, as a grown Christian yourself, you make you must take that responsibility for yourself and and implement this medicine in your life. This is uh, your responsibility. So this is really, I think, this I have from uh, Saint John of Valamo. One of my favorite saints. He always Is that the one up on the side of your wall there, the icon. I think I can see it. Yes, yes. next to the window. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah, that one there. Yeah, I have that one as well. <laughs> yeah, he's one of my favorites. Uh, so, yeah, but um, mainly he's to offer. And Saint John Chrysostom, when he speaks about the priesthood, he says that uh, you know, uh, as a as a husband, you you must present your family before Christ. <laughs> Uh, but as a priest, you don't not only do you have to present your family, but you are also responsible for your spiritual flock, uh, and you must present them for Christ. And this is I, I don't think I really grasped the seriousness of that yet. Mm -hmm. And by God's grace, uh, well, I'm hoping on His grace, really, as a priest, because that is something that humbles you, yeah. really humbles you. Maybe I can tell a little story of somehow how, how I experienced this. Uh, our, our misunderstanding of the of what authority and responsibility actually means. Mm. So I've just been on a patrol training course with the Danish Home Guard. It's a military patrol training where we're out in the field for ten days. Mm. Uh, it's raining. It's cold. We don't have uh, any way to dry our stuff when we get wet, <laughs> and we get wet very much. We have to keep our boots on the whole time because we're simulating that we're kind of behind enemy lines so even when we're sleeping we have to be in one minute readiness at any time we have to be able to jump out of our sleeping bags pack our bag together in less than 60 seconds and be on the move so it's a really really high intense for 10 days in a row and in a group in a patrol group then there are 10 guys and you have different roles and uh, some guys have a lot more responsibility than others. And so we had one guy who was like, you know, much more experienced, who was our, our, our leader. But then we had to have a second in command. And there was a guy who was responsible for the radio, guys responsible for as a medic and all this kind of stuff. And the interesting thing is that like when these roles and responsibilities had to be handed out, nobody wanted them <laughs> because <clears throat> we were in an environment where it was very clear in a very short term sense immediately that it was very difficult to carry responsibilities. And I think part of the reason why we in the West have this twisted and distorted view of what authority and power and responsibility means, we kind of see it as like the fat uh, CEO sitting with his feet up on the desk, smoking a cigar, enjoying mm. the fat of the land. Mm. And we don't actually realize it is because we, we live such comfortable lives. So the distance between the consequences of failed responsibility have been so far removed from us. Mm. And, and that's why we kind of misunderstand what it actually means to have responsibility, what it actually means to take responsibility. Uh, so often we enjoy the, the kind of benefits of a role of authority without really taking on the consequences of the responsibility onto ourselves. Mm. So as, as a priest, when I think you really fully, and it becomes very apparent, I, I believe, you have to take on these responsibilities. And then, and then you see like, this isn't just something where you can, you know, benefit from it, but it's actually a burden that you're carrying with you. Mm. Uh, and, and, and so 
there is in the liturgy we end um, all our prayers with a doxology in which we say something like to you O god belongs our glory uh, honor power and authority and so this is where all authority lies christ says this to pontius pilate um, you wouldn't have any authority if it wasn't given to you by god yeah. and uh, the same is true for a priest a priest uh, lends his hands uh, but it is Christ's authority, by Christ's authority, that he acts in the church as a servant of him. Mm. And um, so uh, all power belongs to God. Uh, and it's important for me as a priest to remember that I'm acting on that authority, mm. uh, not my own authority. But as you say, authority in the fallen world, as we experience it, has become so very distorted mm. from the, the heavenly archetype, so to speak. Yeah, it, it sounds like there's more one could talk about that, but I want to go over to the situation in Sweden there. Mm. Um, so maybe before we start looking at kind of like how we look at this from the Orthodox perspective, can you just give us a, a little bit of a summary of how you see the situation in Sweden right now uh, and what's happening as far as um, an understanding in the, in the broad society about male and female uh, and and what it means to be especially a man if that's the focus of our conversation mm. well uh, sweden like all western societies i would say are greatly influenced by um postmodern or modern ideologies uh, we are a secular country and we have uh, uh, put off the church the faith even the Lutheran faith, all the churches in Sweden are uh, diminishing, losing members. Um, apart from a few examples, I don't have that in my head right now, but uh, faith as such is, uh, at least in the institutional churches, uh, they're diminishing. But uh, you still have uh, secular, it's not as secular when you look to individual uh religious thoughts mm -hmm. so as long as the swedes are able to decide for themselves what they want to believe then they can be quite religious uh, so they take a little from here a little from there uh, and so on but if you take away religion if you take away faith people don't believe in nothing but people will believe in anything so uh, you have all the new age thing going on but you also have a new faith in secular ideologies so you have quite strong movements of uh, you know climate activists greta thunberg um she's a swede you know <laughs> yeah uh, and the prophets uh, of the apocalypse yeah the, yes the prophets indeed that's a good way to describe it. now the embarrassing now. thing is that there were some priests in the lutheran church of sweden that said that she was the successor of christ now that's quite something <laughs> yeah yeah so that's the state of uh, the lutheran church um but you also have you know a, a faith in liberal democracy uh, feminism and even in the most more extreme cases you know queer ideology and things like that uh, which you could adhere to in a religious you know almost fundamental matter manner sorry mm -hmm. also um 
So, so this brings a lot of confusion to Sweden and the West uh, in general. Uh, this is a quite known problem, uh, which I'm sure you you run into uh, quite often in your own line of work. Um, and uh, presenting a traditional Orthodox perspective on these issues uh, can be quite hard sometimes, uh, which I've experienced myself, but uh, nonetheless, it's important to do. But it's important to do uh, in a humble manner, which I haven't always for myself managed to do, but uh, it's really important to get to know why people uh, hold to these views. And it's important to um, see that uh, some of the things that, for example, the feminist movement pointed out, it's a long movement with at least four main, um, uh, how do you say? Um, waves, I think you call them the waves. Of waves, feminism. thanks. Mm. Thanks for helping me out. <laughs> Um, so it's important to acknowledge a few uh, important things there, but nonetheless, less, it's important also to present the orthodox view of things in a faithful uh, manner to to the listeners yeah. on a level that they are able to hear. Um, so I'm trying here and there, but I'm not trying to do it, you know, in a one hour uh, session. But the uh, the faith is presented in the very life of the church and a person and uh, yeah. that's why it's important to stay faithful to it yeah well we've got about 15 minutes left so how about we try and lay out some of the basics of uh, an orthodox position on gender man woman uh, and how we can experience this in a practical way mm -hmm. i think for people who are listening to this like they've kind of you know, ventured slightly into the manosphere. So maybe we're not uh, talking with uh, the most um, sensitive of, of listeners. Um, but I, I, what I definitely experienced is that people are desperately looking for clear answers. Yeah. And that's what made me, when I converted back to Christianity as a kind of 36, 37 year old, um, and then I went out looking, I knew, okay, I need to find a church. I have to ground this 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 belief this faith i have to ground it in an actual real community mm. we're not visiting all the churches i kind of was like you know i'd be doing men's work at that stage for like many many years and so i was like it's like i just didn't find real men in the churches actually i was like i like the men more outside of the churches and the, the christian men i was finding also found very fluffy and, and soft and and when i first time came into an orthodox church then i was just like wow okay that this is there's a solidity coupled with her humility i think which is which is really i i think you formulated it so well like in that bishop you have an image of a man who's who just you can sense the authority but the authority isn't in himself it's not in mm. himself it's because he's grounded on something else outside of himself and far greater than himself mm. that that's why it, it just feels so solid mm. so so can let, let's try ask a big question yeah. uh, and let's see how we go in laying these things out um, Father Michael, what is a man according to the Orthodox faith? What is a man? Well, that's a great question. Um, well, first you have man uh, being humanity, being human. And uh, so if we start in anthropology, we must acknowledge that uh, man is created in the image of likeness, image and likeness of God. 
according to Genesis. So man is connected to God and has his telos, his goal and fulfillment when he comes back to God. He does not have his fulfillment in biological determinism or any other worldly ideology. Everything that the world can present will lead man astray. So man has his telos, his goal in God. Second, man is created with a soul and a body. So our embodiment in which much of our uh, manly uniqueness uh, is situated is also something that is part of how God created us to be. So being a man is something positive. I think this is important to say with all this talk, talk of toxic masculinity, uh, with all this, uh, uh, I don't know if it's the right word, but you know, degradation of manly virtues, strength, uh, competitiveness, and things like that. This is our biology. Uh, we are not determined by it, but this is something that we have been given in our bodies by God and something we can use. Now, that being said, we must also remember that uh, we live in a reality post-sin, the, the fall of man. So everything that we experience in this world is uh, sort of distorted or corrupted. And this also applies to our humanity and our manliness. That's why humility, as we've been talking so much about, is the foundation of what makes a true man. If we only use our... I mean, we've all read about the atrocities of Hamas and what they did to innocent civilians in Israel. Now, that's uh, a toxic and demonic use of masculinity that we read about in certain of those examples. Uh, you can use your... Uh, manly strength to to kill to rape to do all the bad things uh, that toxic masculinity truly is associated with but you can also use your um, masculinity in a way that christ did and he uh, offered his uh, human nature in his masculinity to serve and to give his life for many and this is truly the archetype of what a man is in the orthodox tradition you give your life uh, for example a married man saint paul speaks about this in, in ephesians uh, a, a man in the family is the head of the uh, family and he is called to give his life for his wife and for his children um this can also be applied in uh, non-married men's lives they could live in a way where they're offer their love in a selfless way to people in their, um, you know, area, um, families, friends, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so this is uh, uh, what a man is. Uh, if you want, if I could, I could uh, um, talk also a little about the difference between man and woman. Is that relevant? Yeah. I, I was just thinking, can I add, in another example that to what you were just talking about, yes. um, I, I was just thinking of the story of the Lord of the Rings and Aragorn, who, you know, in, in the final of the final part of the trilogy, takes the battle to the gates of Mordor. Uh, and it's a absolutely crazy thing to do. He has only this tiny hope of Frodo. You know, he's, he, he has a plan. He has a strategy. He's, it's, it's a very coherent idea and it works as well. But, you know, the, the level of hope, well, in some ways, it's, it's a tiny hope. But in some ways, his entire life is steeped 
in a knowledge of who he is and why he's there. So he's let go of the outcome of knowing and he has a trust in life and existence. And so therefore he's willing to, you know, go out there and sacrifice himself uh, because he knows that that's the thing that he has to do. Hmm. So this is uh, for me, that's, you know, because sometimes the idea of Christ, you know, giving himself, we've heard it so many times. It just becomes um, kind of like, okay, you know, whatever. But, (laughs) but, but like, I think seeing that I, that, 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 that fantasy story, that's why Tolkien wrote these books as well. Right. As it was kind of like to reinvigorate us and to help us to see these things in a a new light. And, and so I I think this is the idea of masculine sacrifice that we recognize in every single story where we have a hero. We see a man who goes through incredible hardship and pain, even Mm. to giving up of his own life. Mm. Um, and, And it's from a humility of not being centered around myself and my own needs. Uh, and Christ is the ultimate example of that. He he blows out all the categories of how to be a man uh, in that way. Um, mm-hmm. And all, it, it it was so radical. I think Tom Holland's book, Dominion, was really an excellent example of, of how it, it, that just changed the entire perspective of civilization mm-hmm. from seeing manhood and masculinity as being powerful, strong, dominating, oppressing others, taking slaves, to suddenly our ideals were shifted to this Christian uh, to a Christ-centered uh, ideal, and how that's now being twisted in terrible and distorted ways, of course. Mm. Um, but coming back to orthodoxy, you you get back to the root. Yeah, of you get it, and and you get this, uh, as you said, Aragon uh, role model type in many of the saints as well. Uh, and you know, we just we stick to the tradition, we stick to what has been given to us, and we try to uh, present that as well. Uh, onward even though what the world may say and i repeat the world is, has been saying many things throughout the decades the one thing crazier than the other but stick to the church um the church has a, a, a deeper type of knowledge than the uh, enlightenment uh, type of knowledge so to speak okay so what's the difference between a man and a woman how should we understand that yes so there are two lines of thoughts i would say uh, and both uh, complement each other. You need both in a, in a way. So the first one is rather plainly seen in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, God created man in his own image. Uh, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in this view, man and woman were created by God uh, from the beginning. And this is something that is inherently good. <clears throat> uh, you can read in verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made. And it indeed, it was very good. So being either man or woman is, in this view, something one should thrive in and use to support and uh, support the other sex, either in marriage or in, or in other areas of our common life, as I said earlier. Um, Mother Gerondisa Theologia at the convent of the Panagia of Microcastro in Greece writes about the special feminine love expressed by the mirroring women and she writes together with the disciples these women were attentive to jesus's daily preaching and served him without interruption and further on she also writes god endowed women with a hidden river of affection issuing from deep within her very nature which is able to reshape the world to tame it reconcile and sweeten it to give it and receive uh, to give and receive love and elevate it out of its banality now, that's a wonderful quote about uh, female love. And I think, you know, there's a saying, if you give a woman a house, she will turn it into a home. 
and, and other things like that. So this is really something wonderful. So uh, the man also has his unique way of expressing virtue and love. Mm-hmm. St. Paisios counsels and writes, God has created all things in wisdom. He has endowed man with certain virtues and women with others. He has granted man strength and manliness that he can manage when things are difficult and so that the woman will submit to his leadership. For if God had also given the woman the same manliness, the family would not thrive. This is also a point made by St. John Chrysostom and other saints as well. So there are the basics, I would say. And the majority of the church fathers and saints of the church hold to this view. Uh, But now, of course, all these differences uh, between men and women must be applied pastorally, pastorally according to each person's situation, you know. So uh, not every marriage is perfect where you have, you know, loving, self-sacrificing husband and uh, um, a woman of biblical uh, virtue, so to speak. So you have to, I mean, St. John Chrysostom makes this point as well. He says, uh, you men, you should really be the heads of the household, you know, and by that he means uh, excelling in virtue. But you are uh, you are uh, superseded, is that correct? Mm-hmm. By your wives, so maybe even by your children. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should be the ones taking the lead because being the head is being the leader in virtue. So he says, you know, uh, you must you must repent you must do better and this is this is the first view now there is also a second view um, it's a minority view among the fathers uh, but it is nonetheless quite popular in certain uh, circles today and this view finds its main support in origin which is not a saint uh, and but it is also found in saint gregory of nyssa and saint maximus the confessor and in this view the difference between men and women were a condensation condensation by God uh, in his foreknowledge of the fall of humanity. And so that humanity would have a way of um, continuing its existence, uh, producing children. So the main uh, reason for the difference is for human life to go on through human intercourse and childbearing. And this view uh, can be found in a much debated Ambigua of St. Maximus the Confessor, Ambigua 41, I think. And uh, his point is that these differences must be overcome so that all humans, um, human persons can exist in eternity according to the image of the true man, Jesus Christ himself. And this view, this later view, can be misused by certain theologians to mean that therefore gender and sex does not matter uh, in a sort of agnostic way mm-hmm. and uh, in eternity we will be all queer endogenous uh, angels some, of some sort mm. i've heard this really at this point being made so this is not saint maximus point at all um, but um, we will retain our bodies we will be uh, the persons that we are, but he has a very good point that we must all be uh, formed according to the image of Jesus Christ as the true human. So um, that's why I say both those views complement each other. Yeah. 
I really love it that you, when you started, you you took the perspective of like feminine love and masculine love, um, because at, talking about the church as a hospital, it's so clear to me how uh, it's through a lack of love that we struggle with our own selfishness and our own self-centeredness. Mm. And as we are able to experience love with other human beings, um, then, then we're able to grow and become more, you know, tap into that source of love ourselves. Mm. And, and there's such a clear differentiation between it. it we just had a retreat over in Detroit and in, in the U S um, where especially father Hans Jacobsy talks a lot about paternal love and maternal love uh, and, and how those, are different and so clear to anybody who's ha has a mother and a father or has children how you know those the, the, those plowed in different ways and um and and how we need both of them uh, mm. and, and in some ways i think you're right like the the female feminine maternal love is more foundational and it's stronger and it's 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 incredibly beautiful as well and i also read recently a passage from john chrysostom who who really praises the mirror bearing, bearing woman like you know what amazing dedication and and absolute, you know, it's, so it's it's really something. Mm. But um, I think, especially these days, uh, and in our society, we've lost sight of the paternal love, the the aspects of of the, the father who lifts up his children, who sets standards, who guides them, uh, mm. and and who helps them on the way, which is absolutely central and important uh, to, I, to coming about. Can I add? Can I add one thing, Paul, um, mm. to this paternal love? Yeah. Um, if we read in first. Kings chapter 2 verse 2 uh, Saint David is speaking to his son Solomon he's about to die David that is mm -hmm. and he says I go the way of all the earth it means I'm, I'm going to become dust I'm going to die be strong therefore and prove yourself a man now what does that mean prove yourself a man and he goes on and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways to keep his statutes his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, and so on. And that is really still applies today uh, for someone who wants to be a man. Paul says this, be strong, be manly. What does it mean? It means going to church, uh, submitting to the medicine of the church, of Christ in the church, and bring your family with you. Don't stand outside the church smoking cigarettes while the uh, women and children are in the church. That's uh, not manliness. Uh, that's a worldly caricature. And um, there was a study done. It's quite famous. I think it was done in Switzerland when they uh, compared different families with each other and uh, how many of the kids wanted to continue in the faith of their parents. And the the regular attendance of the father in the church was one factor, you know, raising the percentage of people uh, of the children wanting to continue in that faith. So, I mean, being a man, you have in your nature a natural authority, which you can use in a you can misuse it, but you can use it in a positive way. And being a role model for your kids, bringing them to church and listening to the teaching of the church is the best possible way of using that. Uh, paternal love and authority that you spoke about. Yep, you need your microphone on. Sorry, I've been coughing. <laughs> yes. So if we have to turn our perspective just shortly to what's happening outside, then what do you think is the fundamental mistake 
that secular mainstream society is making when it comes to sex and gender that's leading to all of this confusion that we're seeing at the moment? Well, let's first give some positive things, because as we've said, the world is a fallen place and men have misused their strength and authority. And that's why there was a need for the first waves of the feminist movement. I mean, you have Aristotle thinking that women were half men and you've had other people or, saying, it, or like, yeah, the de- 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 deprived men or like the you know, de- de- dysfunctional men, right? Yes, dysfunctional men. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you've had this... Uh, this has been a problem and and women have suffered through uh, through history this is true men also but women so uh, in certain aspects this movement uh, had points that were important to make uh, but uh, without christ you will get lost and without uh, if you if you disconnect uh, anthropology from uh, who created us uh, which uh, who it's god then and if you're trying to figure out um, the relationship between men and women, it becomes quite difficult, um, difficult to figure out it um, on our own. And this is, I think, the, the biggest problem that uh, we need to understand where our telos is, where we are headed as created by God. And it is back to God. And therefore, um, we need to listen to the teaching of the church. And, and I uh, I'm, I'm sure you've met people that I've, I've had. I've, I have many people in our church, young persons that uh, come and find rest in the church, women that come and don't feel the need to compete on uh, men's, uh, you know, on, on the area of the men. You can see the the parody of this is now in in sports where men can compete with women, women in swimming and uh, you know boxing and things like that. It's it's a uh, it's it's a joke so this is how wrong uh, it can go uh, if we listen only to ideologies of the world and philosoph- philosophies of the world uh, that's where you go astray and you know human nature is uh, whimsical uh, goes here and there by the slightest push or wind and uh, even though you think you are you have the right on your side uh, you will get lost in different ditches and holes on the way to your goal. You need the church to, you know, maneuver uh, because you need Christ as your goal. So what? how do you see that the church can help people to more fully experience and realize, I don't know if we call it their gender identity, but uh, how, how can the church do this? Um. I think that is it's very important for the church to stay true to the holy tradition uh, in a way that is vivifying for our world and time. And this does not mean that you, we should change what we believe, um, but uh, adhere to it and present it in a humble, loving way. You know, uh, give the medicine to people that come and ask for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know... You know, if you try to argue with people on um, official platforms like newspapers or um, magazines or what have you, I think you're maybe um, getting people even more solidified in their respective trenches. Uh, So it's better in the personal meeting um, to meet person, show them the love of Christ, show them that, you know, Every person is a sinner. Every person comes to the church to be healed. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, this is the main purpose of the church. Um, even me as a priest, I'm in the church to to meet the the, the great healer Christ. Uh, but we all have different things that we need to be healed from, and um, you know, confusion in gender identity can be one of those things. Uh, but we've seen that the world, in her ideologies, confused people uh, even more. We've seen the re- rise um, of uh, female confusion, especially on gender identity, in a way that is must be due to social contagion, so to speak. So yeah. um, staying true, uh, being um, faithful, and uh, you know, don't be ashamed of. Uh, the church and uh, her services, what she does and things like that. I think that's important. Yeah. There's a sense whereby a lot of people think that all the things we're experiencing right now are new, but if you dig into history, you'll find, you know, these transgender movements popping up, especially at times of civilizational collapse. So it's, it's not a new thing. <laughs> it's, it's happens often at times when there's widespread collapse and disintegration of societal norms. It was mm. happening, you know, before Hitler came to power in Berlin uh, in, in the 30s and 40s, right? So after like massive hyperinflation and collapse of German society, then you're seeing this stuff exploding, the total collapse of, this, you know, sexual norms. And, you know, you could mm. buy child prostitutes on the streets of Berlin for nothing. And, mm. um, and, and there was this like complete abandonment of of like male and female norms and the same thing happened when the roman empire was collapsing of course as well is that we saw nero becoming married uh to another man as himself being the bride the bride um and and you know so and that was you know widely spread and you know kind of this kind of like craziness Mm. and so you know i actually you know in, in some of these milieu there's a sense i think where a lot of people have it like okay either we're heading into there's like this confusion, like we're heading into something new and amazing. It's going to be like a new era. It's going to be utopia. Or maybe everything's falling to pieces. And there's like a little bit of like an excitement about that. And mm-hmm. and and I think it's just, I've just seen again and again and again that people who've come from these environments and myself have having experienced this firsthand and seeing how coming back to these things, like, no, what, what a human being is, what a man is, it hasn't changed. It's still the same thing. Even mm. if you look at this from an evolutionary perspective, you know, things work on a very, very slow timescale. Mm. Being a, what, a, what a man is, it's created in the image of God. And it, and it is. Uh, that doesn't change. It doesn't change. It's always the same. Mm. Um, and, and so coming back to these truths, it's just like the first experience is just like, ah, relaxation, like ah, peace. Mm. It's like I'm, 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 where, I'm where I need to be, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think, I think, I believe we've gone a little bit over time. Uh, so I hope we're, let, let's, let's, um, finish off. Yes. Um, maybe just the one thing I wanted to tidy up is that some people really have this thought that you spoke a little bit about male headship. Uh, and a lot of people inter- interpret that as like male superiority and somehow it's a devaluement of women. So can can you just clear that up for you? Are men and women not don't do they not have the same value? Should they not be treated equally? Uh, or or how is it that you, you said like men should be leaders in virtue? Uh, so so how should we understand this idea of male headship? Hmm. Yes. Uh, well, uh, let's begin with where our value as human persons lie, and that is in uh, the fact that we are being made in the image and likeness of God. 
and that applies both equally to men and women. And it also means that both men and women are equally uh, um, responsible before God for their actions, uh, virtue as well as vice. So you will not you you will not have a, uh, any excuse because of your if you're women or men. Um, now uh, the headship is a biblical thought, and uh, it's also in all the church fathers. Um, as a role given given to the man, and it's uh, compared to Christ being the head of the church. Um, and uh, if you read it in a worldly way, as some have done, uh, they have they are disconnected with the holy tradition, and they have uh, thought that this means, uh, you know, making all the decisions, having all the authority, um, things like that, in a quite a um, diminishing way for women. Mm -hmm. If you read the Church Fathers, this is not the picture that is presented. Uh, for example, St. John Chrysostom talks about the man and the husband cooperating in the household. And uh, uh, St. Paul also speaks about uh, the woman being the despota, the ruler of the house. Mm -hmm. um, in one verse, I, I can't remember it right now. So Clearly, there is a shared uh, responsibility and authority in which the man has the last say, so to speak. St. John Chrysostom also says that we cannot have democracy in the household because then we will have chaos. Mm. And uh, this is a provocative thought for modern man because democracy is, you know, sort of our house god. Um, and for good reasons, perhaps. But um, uh, in the family, this is not how uh, the church sees how it should work uh, so but the the christian way of exercising this headship is not power and authority but uh, it's authority but it's humble authority like the bishop for example he's the head of uh, the local church so he has to have authority and humbleness and he has to seek the source of that uh energy so to speak and that is christ so he, he has to seek christ if you have a husband who does not seek christ but seek his own gain or lust then uh, he has no right to be the head just in 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 case of him being a man or a husband so you need to anchor that authority and headship in christ himself i think okay. you cannot stress this enough yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Your your authority as a man is not anchored in your manliness; it's anchored in your in your role as a godly man or as a man who's following yes. Christ. That's yes. that's where your authority is. That helps a lot, I think. Okay, great. Well, Father Mikael, um, last time I spoke to you, then every single person who I knew in Sweden and spoke to for like a month afterwards, they were also like, "Oh, I saw your conversation with Father Mikael." So <laughs> I think that um, most of my Swedish audience are already know about you and are following you um and i think most of the content you're putting out is in swedish is, is that correct it's all in swedish yeah so but i, yes, I think you're right. doing an amazing job in putting out not just the orthodox faith but also guidelines and and input for navigating these complicated times so where do people find you uh online um and and how can they follow your work if they're maybe let's also if, if your people are based in gothenburg then you can also say how how can they uh 
check you out um uh, yes well. first of all glory to god for everything uh i'm the i'm the priest in the uh, in a church in gothenburg called holy resurrection so the web address in swedish is uh, www.kristiuppstandelse.se and uh, i have a podcast called the orthodox christian faith but in swedish orthodox christian true Uh, which is available on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Um, I also have a blog, uh, which I've had for many, many years since the era of blogging. But I put on some, I put out some material there, which I find useful. Uh, latest was um, um, uh, someone talking about the icon of the Last Judgment and uh, giving the teaching of the church through that icon. It's a very good series. So this uh, blog is called. Gäst och främling, så so it's gast uh, gast uh, och främling wordpress.com, so it's in Swedish, but uh, there's where you can find my things. Okay, great. Uh, I'd actually like to read that. I have that icon of the Last Judgment. That's a crazy icon, really, really intense. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that sounds really interesting. Mm. Okay, thank you very much, Father Mikael. Much appreciated. Uh, thank you, Paul, and God bless you.